Hello, everyone. This is Isabel Matreja, Marketing Manager for International Affairs, which is the Journal of Chatham House. And I'm Christina Chotia, the Managing Editor of International Affairs. Can you believe that we've reached the final episode of the podcast? I know, I really can't believe it. So this is episode six of our mini-series, Reflections at 100, which is celebrating our century-old archive, which also means that our centenary year is almost over. Well, only for the next year, and then uh, we have our 100th volume celebrations coming up. Yeah, and we also have a few more celebrations in the new year, so we're not really being done with it, guys. In this episode, we speak to Katerina Rietzler, who guest edited our final archive collection, on women's contribution to international affairs between the 1920s and the 1970s. And then I will be speaking to Professor Barbara Savage about black women's contributions to international thought. And later on, we're going to speak to Leah DeHaan, who is the Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Chair at Chatham House, to understand what Chatham House is doing today on women's inclusion and diversity more broadly. At the end of the episode, to wrap up the series, we're also speaking to our colleague Joe Hills, who is the digital content editor at International Affairs and has been involved in putting together these archive collections. Neither this podcast nor the archive collections more broadly could have happened without Joe. I think it's only a mild exaggeration to say that Joe has read every single article the journal has published in the last 100 years. So stay tuned for their reflections. We hope you enjoy the episode and make sure you go and read the collection online now. All of the articles are free to access until the end of December. Enjoy the episode. So today we're speaking to Katerina Rietzler, who is a senior lecturer in American history and the head of American studies at the University of Sussex. Katerina's research focuses on the history of international thought from the 1910s to the 1960s, with a particular focus on women as international thinkers. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Katerina. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for being here. So let's get straight into it. What contributions have women made to the discipline of international relations, particularly in its early years? Okay, so that's a huge question in many, many ways, because obviously you can look at it in terms of intellectual content. What areas of international politics have women been working on in the early years of the discipline or maybe of the academic field? And also in terms of the kinds of contributions that were made. Um, Are we talking about public speaking? Are we talking about pamphlets? Are we talking about hefty tomes of sort of dense research or theory? Are we talking about the academic realm? Are we talking about activism, the various pressure groups that existed in the world of international affairs, whether that was pressure groups for international organizations such as the League of Nations or single issue campaigning? What sort of professions are we talking about? Are we talking, again, narrowly about universities, colleges, maybe even adult education, further education, schools, teaching? Or are we talking about um, other fields, which could be as far removed as, say, social work? So some some women thinkers started out as social workers and, and theorized about international affairs from that particular location. And then obviously, I mean, we are focusing on think tanks today, but um, it must be said that those locations were not particularly diverse in terms of race and ethnicity. Um, If we're talking about activism, we also have to talk about the various anti-racist movements, movements for racial justice that were part of that broader 
kind of international affairs space in the early years from the early 20th century to the mid 20th century, maybe even before then. So there's a huge diversity of forms of contributing and, and also of intellectual substance. And perhaps to sort of go back to the archive collection uh, that I've worked on for international affairs, just in terms of areas of interest, um, a lot of women were working on questions around international organization, um, international governance, but also um, questions around empire, about colonialism, imperialism, anti-imperialism. Some were uh, becoming area specialists or issue specialists. Um, so Chatham House is one of several think tanks that sort of emerge in that period and are also quite specific as locations for women's intellectual production. Others uh, in the U.S. also existed, such as the Foreign Policy Association. And um, one researcher there, for example, became a real specialist in drug control, um, in opium in particular. So there's a vast range of specialisms, forms of expertise. It's really, really difficult to generalize. And I, I would also say that it's really important to realize that Women had all sorts of interests, whether that was war and diplomacy, immigration, and they weren't narrowly concerned with issues around gender, so classic women's issues, such as the so-called traffic in women and children, or, or the status of women, the legal status of women, um, questions around nationality, or indeed the right to vote, women's suffrage. So that was one area of many. So... In your introduction, you have a fascinating discussion on women's contributions to the early years of the discipline and to how the, the discipline of international relations was born and shaped. But something seems to change after the Second World War and a lot of these contributions are erased. What happened? Again, it's a really, really complex answer and you have to look at it at various levels. So I'll, I'll try to disentangle that um, a little bit. First of all, there are barriers, formal barriers to women's participation in academic life. And um, those exist both in the United States and in Britain. And those are the two countries that I focused on. But obviously, I could name other countries as well in Europe and, and further afield. So there are formal barriers to women's equal participation in university life, whether that's uh, universities not conferring degrees or not admitting them. Um, and these barriers exist well into the post-1945 period and, and are always there. And they do, I think, contribute to the erasure of women who made important contributions in their time, but then subsequently are not perhaps taken seriously because they are not located in those, for example, elite universities. So if you think about um, the United States, the Ivy League, uh, many Ivy League institutions only admit women uh, from the 1960s. And there are elite women's colleges that are also quite, um, they are intellectual heavyweights, but they're perhaps they're not taken as seriously later on. So, so there's this kind of barrier. But then there's also the evolution of the discipline of IR, which was really more of an academic field in the interwar years. So it wasn't, there were attempts to sort of formalize it, to institutionalize it rather as a, as a discipline. But that process took quite some time and it, it was far from complete before the Second World War. So um, even though we have, um, for example, professorships in, in international politics and in international relations, the discipline itself only consolidates after World War II a little bit in 
earlier in the United States than in Britain. And whenever you have a process of discipline formation, of institutionalization, things get left out. And there is an emphasis on making the discipline um, more scientific, a, a proper discipline with its consolidated um, and accepted theories. And that is a process that tends to push women to the margins. And they, they tend to be sort of excluded from the discipline, even though their contributions are intellectually um, remain important. And one important example that uh, my colleague Patricia Owens at Oxford has worked on is the history of uh, colonial administration as a kind of intellectual field, which gets written out of IR. And that disadvantages women such as Lucy Philip Mayer, who was an expert on colonial administration and who was also included in the archive collection. The discipline of IR becomes quite blind to certain questions around race, empire, colonialism. And those questions are marginalized. And in that process, some women at least also become marginalized. And another reason why there's a process of erasure after the Second World War. And I think, again, it's a well-known phenomenon that thinkers are sort of appreciated in their time, but then when it comes to writing the histories of to, to forming the canons, they, they are left out. For women, that's often also a problem relating to the forms of their thinking, right? the forms of intellectual production. And you do tend to get more women than men, I would say, involved in um, issues around international education. So there was an ethos of um, producing international citizens, so um, ordinary men and women who were conscious of the complexities of international affairs and who knew something about the world. And that kind of educational work, or pedagogical work, is more often than not taken up by women. And so you have intellectual contributions that, for example, take the form of, of pamphlets, of of kind of more pedagogical literature, of a public speaking. Um, one example from the American scene I could cite here is uh, Vera Michaelis Dean, who was a phenomenally busy public speaker. This was a woman who toured the US constantly, was speaking at women's clubs, uh, business women's clubs, for example, um, really trying to educate what we might call ordinary Americans. Obviously, there was also a middle class bias here. In, um, about international politics. And that is really hard to capture then in subsequently as a form of intellectual contribution. Oh, that's fascinating. I think you started, obviously, we're talking there about the treatment of women in the academic space. And I wonder, were think tanks more open to women? Was there a sort of different treatment there? Because there were so many women, as you've sort of rightly included in the collection, who made a significant impact within Chatham House and within the journal. I would say... Yes and no. Chatham House was, I think, quite unique in how open it was and the only comparable institution within North America and Europe, I think, would be the Foreign Policy Association in the United States. So Chatham House was, for its time, fairly open to women. Chatham House had a sister institution in the United States um, and those two were formally linked. Um, they had the sort of same founding generation, same founding moments, and that was the Council on Foreign Relations in New York City. And the council was a lot less hospitable to women, didn't admit them as members, wouldn't let them give uh, sort of these famous uh, after-dinner speeches that 
to to a sort of select elite audience. Um, that was when the sort of foreign policy establishment was meeting, and it took until the early mid fifties until women were sort of included in that. So, in that sense, Chatham House in particular was quite open. However, within the conventions of the time, so quite a few women that are included in the archive collection started out. Funnily enough, as research assistants to Arnold Toynbee, that seems to be a running thread. So, so you have this roster of highly educated, motivated, intelligent, hardworking young women who end up being Toynbee's research assistants, and and basically do a lot of the quite labor-intensive compiling and and putting together of this of the survey um, that that Toynbee is is famous for. For him, so so they start. Then I wouldn't say they're treated on equal terms as men, but nonetheless, there are some intellectual or sort of career pathways that lead through Chatham House that at least provide an opening, an opportunity. And um, because Chatham House wasn't a university, but it was within that academic sphere, that can really make a scholarly career. So I'll, I'll give you one example. Maybe um, Elizabeth Monroe is another one of these university-educated, it has to be said, very elite in terms of class status, women, because she has access to to the best education, she works in Geneva for a while, multilingual, hardworking, etc., etc., who who ends up, through a researcher position in Chatham House, getting a Rockefeller Fellowship. So the Rockefeller Foundation was a major funder of international relations as a kind of intellectual field discipline in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. And Chatham House nominates Elizabeth Monroe for this fellowship. And this gives her the um, financial freedom and also the kind of prestige of a major fellowship to conduct very complex field fieldwork in the Mediterranean. And that leads then to a major monograph, which is well received. That then leads to um, other work. And uh, she ends up at Oxford at uh, St. Anthony's College and um, becomes a Middle East expert who's who's well recognized and a real authority in her field. But I think she really benefited from those intellectual opportunities that were opened up um, through this think tank work. And another Example, a um, very famous example might be Susan Strange, who found academia quite hostile. So Susan Strange, um, it has it has been alleged that that uh, she left an academic post because of hostility towards her as a mother of several children. Um, she moves to Chatham House, and this is when uh, she formulates her major intervention in the discipline in the 1970s about the importance of international political economy. And it's a real sort of manifesto piece that's also included in the archive collection that changes the discipline. But again, we we might wonder if she had been able to produce this, to write this, if she hadn't had that opportunity to be in Chatham House. This is a little bit speculative, but for some women at least, think tanks are quite hospitable. Obviously, you know, they are, Lots of women who do very unrecognized work, whether that's as uh, secretaries or in the press clippings department or or just doing very sort of clerical administrative work, the sort of classic uh, hosting as well. Um, you know, that, that, that goes on too. But uh, for some women, this is a real um, opportunity. You made the really important point earlier that women working in international relations 
were unnecessary working on so-called women's issues. One of the topics that you highlighted that was really of interest to women scholars is international organizations. Why was that the case? I think it's really dangerous to look for contributions that that are in one way or another about about gender, right? It's I'm not making an original point here. This has been made before by by other scholars working on women's intellectual history that looking for feminists is kind of a form of of pseudo inclusion. If you only recognize women's contribution, if they have something, if they can be sort of read as feminist, then then we are leaving out a lot of really important work um, that was excluded um, because of the identity of those who produced it. So I think that's a very important point, and thank you for coming back to it. But it also links to the question of international organization. Why was international organization such an important issue for so many uh, women publishing in Chatham House, or indeed women working in the wider field of international relations, in particular the 1920s and 30s? Well, First of all, there, there is a sort of distinct women's internationalism. And for those who want to know more about this, um, Glenda Sluger has written a really excellent essay um, on this particular question in her edited volume, um, together with Patricia Clavin on internationalism. Internationalisms, I think it's called, it came out a few years ago. So during World War One, we have a sort of real wave of women's organizing for international organization, for international peace and expressing the hope that supranational institutions will make it easier to build a peaceful world order. So this is already happening to some extent before World War I, but then really during World War I in a major way. And um, we also have many, many women's groups that are created in this period that have a focus on international organizations, uh, specifically on the League. And we're not just talking about Western women here, women in Europe, or North America, um, this this is a global phenomenon. And for example, we have um, women's groups in India that lobby the League of Nations on specific issues. And the League does get quite involved in sort of classic women's issues, such as the trafficking in women and children. And another reason why the League is important for women interested in international affairs, whether that's in activism or um, scholarship, is that it does admit women and men on an equal basis when it comes to employment. It is quite consciously more open than, say, bureaucracies in particular nation states or, or empires would be. So there is a huge amount of activism, um, lobbying work, intellectual production that happens around the League um, that extends to sort of other areas of knowledge production, such as the uh, League of Nations Library. We have the League of Nations librarian Florence Wilson was an American woman who made important contributions in in her own right um, to the discipline. So there are many reasons why women are drawn to international organization. And there's also a sort of more, shall we say, political, ideological component here. There, There is a sort of ethos, especially among liberal internationalist women, that women are sort of supposed to be international citizens. Um, ideas around women's citizenship, which are obviously linked to all that activism, all that political work around women's suffrage. Um, So ideas around women's citizenship do become drawn into the international sphere, or at least they are sort of suffused with the idea that that women should care about international relations. They they should be invested in it intellectually, um, perhaps also politically and emotionally. 
Um, so there is this particular ethos. Not everybody necessarily agreed with that. Um, and I think, especially in the United States, we see a backlash after perhaps beginning already in the interwar years, but especially then in the 40s and 50s against international organizations. So it becomes one of those political issues that really divides, um, in particular, American women in the era of McCarthyism in particular. So that's when the United Nations and UNESCO become these bogeymen for some women on the right. So that should also be um, said on this particular question. It's not all women uh, who, who are necessarily supporters of international organisations. And we've talked about a few significant women already, but I wonder why was Margaret Cleave such an important figure? Margaret Cleave was an important figure for Chatham House as an institution, uh, not necessarily for Chatham House women. Uh, she uh, held the institution together, especially during the war years. And if you've spent any time in the Chatham House archives, you, you realise quite how hard she worked. She was a really important presence who got involved in, in everything from publications to assigning research studies. Uh, she sometimes intervened at quite a high level, for example, um, she didn't intervene when it came to commissioning a study by by E. H. Carr. This is um, and, and she said she said no to that um, because of Carr <laughs> obviously that that was after he published the Twenty Years Crisis um, had had made himself uh, some somewhat unpopular and uh, and and Cleve knew this and and intervened. Uh, so so Cleve was an important mover and shaker behind the scenes, um, but she's one of those women who hardly published anything herself. I mean we. We have um, some bibliographies, some editing work, but she's not really recognizable as an intellectual. But if we take into account that research convening, liaising, creating opportunities for others to publish books, monographs, articles, etc., if we include that in the larger category of intellectual production, then Undoubtedly, she was a major figure and um, she is recognized also in her time. She is uh, she's also a woman who has a significant amount of power. As I've already said, she can decide whether somebody is writing a study for Chatham House or not. And um, she's also involved in some very sensitive negotiations between Chatham House, which is as a think tank, obviously always looking for funding, um, and the Rockefeller Foundation, which I've already mentioned, a major funder of international relations research in this period, leave as part of these negotiations. So that just shows how uh, at what level she worked at Chatham House. Yeah, and I'd recommend you all read the introduction because Katerina paints an amazing picture of uh, Margaret's work at Chatham House and uh, with the journal, of course, editing the journal through the Second World War and beyond. So we've come to our final question. We always finish with the same one. While putting together this collection, was there anything that surprised you? It's the same with all this work. And I think um, my um, collaborators in, in the wider project I'm engaged in, the Women and the History of International Thought Project, which, which is a Leverhulme-funded major research project that I've been involved in for several years. And my collaborators, as I've already mentioned, Patricia Owens at Oxford and Kim Hutchings at Queen Mary here, in London, and also Joanna Wood, who's uh, doing a PhD on this very topic. And I think we're always surprised by the sheer number of interesting thinkers that we could include, but that there isn't enough space for. And I would say the same about this particular archive collection, which was 
been focused on, on my specialism, the think tank as a location. But if you ask the question more widely, there are so many, so many women who are working on international relations broadly defined in this period. They made significant contributions at, at various levels and there are so many more. And uh, even within the somewhat narrow locations that our research has focused on, which is mostly Britain and the United States as a location. But there's a lot more work to do. And um, for this archive collection, there there were a number of women that um, I had to leave out. And I think we also haven't really done enough work on even more unconventional women contributors, say uh, there, there was a sort of particular persona of the international traveller who uh, often upper class British, white British woman traveling to sort of foreign locales and becoming an, an expert and often also an advocate for particular populations. That's another very distinct form of intellectual production that I, I don't think sort of really gotten to the analyzed in, in full. Um, so I think that's what remains surprising to me. Um, the sheer number, diversity of intellectual contributions um, as I've already said, the think tank as a location is not in this particular time period diverse in, in, in terms of class, in terms of race and ethnicity. So there are many more contributions that need to be uncovered and to be looked at and to be recovered properly. Um, also in other languages, of course, even though English is the, sort of the dominant language in, in the IR field, um, it's by far not the only one. Uh, so there's a lot more work to do. Um, that doesn't really surprise me, but in a way, so does. Great. Well, thank you so much, Katerina. And I would recommend you all go and read her introduction and look at the articles included in the collection, which are free to access until the end of December. But thank you so much for being here, Katerina. This was really fascinating. Thank you, Katerina. Thank you very much. I'm here with Professor Barbara D. Savage, who is Professor Emerita of American Social Thought and Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Hi, Barbara. Hi, how are you? Great. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Before, we spoke to Katerina about women's contribution to international thought, but mainly from a UK perspective. So, Barbara, could you tell us a little more about the contribution of Black women to international relations? Black women have always thought about the international from the very beginning of their contributions as writers in the United States uh, by necessity. But the international is always, you know, figured in in a large way. If we think about international relations as an academic discipline, then that raises a whole set of other questions having to do with race and segregation and exclusion in the American academy, including international relations, but not Uh, limited to that. But we do begin to see Black women publishing formally about Africa, about uh, imperialism or or anti-colonialist movements as early as the 1930s and certainly even before then, but more and more of it uh, in the pre-world, in the interwar period. And so it is a recurring theme and it's a fairly constant theme in African-American political thought in general and including among uh, Black women who are are writing about the international 
in the spaces where they can be heard. And that includes, of course, formal political commentary, but also in essays and poems, um, in fiction, but also those who have been permitted and were able to have formal academic training eventually in the usual um, uh, outlets for academic work as well. Katharina mentioned that certain think tanks, for example, were more hospitable to women in the UK. Was that the same in the US and especially for black women? It was not the same in the US, and I'm familiar uh, with that information on the UK. In the United States, race pretty much trumps everything. And so the exclusion of black women from academic settings also extended and, and included their exclusion, exclusion from similar um, sort of think tanks or other formal outlets engaged in foreign affairs or diplomatic history or international relations. That also applied to, to Black men to the extent that there is a period, as Katharina mentioned to you, where women are sitting at the beginning of the discipline. That's not the same for Black women in the United States. Very different, very different set of circumstances. We're talking about a time when Black writers and Black scholars are basically operating in as segregated scholars, or they're operated, you know, under the the racist exclude their racist exclusion from the traditional uh, outlets for academic work and political thought. And so, no, that's that's actually quite a stark difference. Did Black scholars have other outlets um, where they could participate aside from the university spaces? Yes, if you were interested in seeing. As a researcher, if you're interested in finding the ideas that Black women had about the international, about foreign affairs or diplomatic issues, you would find that in Black newspapers, uh, in journals that were established by Black scholars at a time when Black scholars could not be published in the mainstream academic journals. And you would be able to find it in talks and speeches that Black women are giving as public intellectuals. And so the material is, the the evidence and the materials of their engagement with these issues is plentiful. It's just not in the usual, you know, in the usual sources. So for example, the Journal of Negro History, which is what it was called at the time, now the Journal of African American History, was actually a great, it remains a great source for publications uh, from the 1920s and 1930s forward, that despite the title, those journals also covered issues that were beyond domestic race relations, beyond domestic uh, African-American history. And so those served as um, repositories for the ideas of of Black women. Um, You find it in in the minutes of their uh, sororities and 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 churches, and so it's there. It's just that being excluded from the traditional uh, journals and from think tanks, there were other outlets. But it also shows an incredible amount of interest from a black public in these ideas and a move beyond any kind of provincial understanding of African American history. That by definition and by nature. Black history is diasporic. And so to make sense of the condition of African-Americans in the United States, one would need to understand 
you know, broader issues of political economy uh, and and uh, international relations and, and interstate relations, and not including, of course, in particular, an interest in Africa earlier, but beyond that, and an interest in people of African descent in an African diaspora all over the world. And so we see it, it's everywhere to be found, but not just, but not in the traditional um, places. So it sounds like these interventions created public discussions around the topics you mentioned. It did. And you would find there was an eagerness to learn and to know. And when when people began to talk about foreign affairs and international issues, I mean, those ideas and, and interests would come to, to Black audiences in a number of different ways and, and because of a number of different things. We forget, for example, the extraordinary participation of Black soldiers in World War I and in World War II, and in fact, all of the wars that this country has engaged in, and what it means to then be a Black soldier from a segregated U.S. who goes and fights in in Europe or Asia and then comes back to the United States, raising and asking a certain kinds of questions. And I use that example to say that this is not something, the ideas of the international is not something abstract, but we're beginning to see African-Americans travel internationally themselves much more in the, you know, in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, and certainly as the 20th century uh, advances. So there was a tremendous amount of, of interest and eagerness and to place the, the political experience of African-Americans and their struggles against segregation and, and racism in a broader international uh, perspective. And so that is, as I said, one of the most recurring and constant themes in African-American political thought, including among Black women. Moving back to the academic side of international relations, were more opportunities created for Black women from the 1950s onwards? I'd say that's a good. I said the 1950s is a is a good place to begin, but I think that the 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 academic opportunities for Black women actually begin to open rather slowly. The first three Black women to receive a doctorate in this country happens in 1921, but it is then a very slow uh, process. The real explosion in, in Black women being trained as academics is much later than that and does not really occur until the 1960s and without and, and with real honesty, really not until the middle of the 1970s uh, as a post-civil rights uh, development. Now, that is not to say that there weren't Black women who were doing that work. There were uh, and doing important work, but as a rule, the uptick in, in Black women's participation in the kinds of this kind of forum that we're discussing was really a, a, a post-1970s development because of race. So I wanted to ask you about one of these thinkers in particular. So I know you're writing a biography of Mer State. Could you tell us a little more about her contribution? Yes, Mer State is uh, the rare Black woman academic of the, er of the early to mid uh, 20th century. She trained at Oxford in the 1930s and in, in international relations, economics, and then came back to this country, eventually received a doctorate in government from Harvard in 1941, which was an extraordinary uh, exception in that way. 
It's very impressive given all of the barriers that you've been discussing. Absolutely. And and uh, is a testament to her will and fortitude and also a testament to a cooperative spirit and a, and a generosity uh, among Black women's organizations who helped her literally in terms of funding and making her her education possible, but also white women in this country and at Oxford who worked closely with her and supported her. So her life is also a testament to that kind of interracial um, cooperation and and, um, and interracial uh, cooperation as well. She is a prolific or was a prolific scholar. Her earliest work was on disarmament or uh, on the, eventually on the limitation of, of armaments, which she published in the 1940s. And again, in the 1960s on that topic, she then began projects on American imperialism, which is, is was groundbreaking at the time by focusing on American interventions in Hawaii in the middle of the 19th century, seeing that as the beginning of Americans, American colonial uh, expansion in the early 19th and, and 20th century, eventually culminating, of course, in the annexation and then statehood for Hawaii. But at the center for analysis of American intervention in that period there is the political environment of the United States at the time that she's writing. She's writing in the 19, early 1960s. So her analysis also references the race and racial ideas that are basically imported from the United States and played upon uh, indigenous people in Hawaii. So race and the Civil War and the Reconstruction Era, which is a period that she's covering, she argues is inseparable from that colonial uh, excursion in Hawaii. From that, she does a great deal of work actually on imperialist designs in the South Pacific, not just limited to the U.S., but to the U.K. and France and others, as that works itself out, particularly in the post-World War II era. So that's one big chunk of the work that she did. And then finally, in the late 1970s, she turned to questions of imperialism in Africa, and particularly in Eastern and Southern Africa, and really pioneered a way of thinking about international corporate imperialism there, that the threat would not come so much from guns and armaments as where her work had begun, but from the transfer of international capital, the building of railroads and the infrastructure for mineral extractions in Africa, and primarily the sort of transformation of imperialism that basically is, is, is conducted by international corporations. So in all of these ways, we have someone with a broad understanding conceptualization of international thought and international relations, but who also brings very fresh and bold interpretations and ideas that then take several decades for the profession as a whole to actually acknowledge and take up. Absolutely. And I mean, as you were speaking, I kept thinking that these are still topics that are vitally important to international relations today. Yes, they absolutely are. And her work continues to be relevant. And her work right now, thanks in part to digital technologies, not unlike the one that we're using here, um, but it is possible to now find her printed work. She published five books and 
hundreds of articles, and those are now being found by scholars who are researching in these areas. And I certainly hope that this book will bring greater attention to her work. Uh, I try to engage with it critically, and I hope others will do the same. But her life also stands as an inspirational uh, story of the of the the ambition to basically become a scholar for a black woman at that time, which was as bold and as ambitious as as anything at a time when she would remain for most of her life one of the few black women academics. Can I give a little plug for the book? When can we expect to find it in the bookshops? Yes, uh, the book is in copy editing as we speak at Yale University Press with it expected to be published in the fall of 2023. Great. So please do go and check out the book um, once it's published. And Barbara, thank you so much. This was fascinating. Good. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. We're here with Leah DeHaan, who is our Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Chair at Chatham House and former IA staff member. Hey, Leah, how are you doing? Hi, Leah. Hiya. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be back in the IA team. Yeah, great to have you. So we want to know a little bit about what's been going on at Chatham House since, you know, we've been talking to Katerina about the period up until the 1970s. But what's happening since then? What are we doing on female inclusion? Of course. Um, So... I can't comment as much on the 70s uh, to the, what should we say, the 2010s. But I can tell you a little bit about um, what we've been doing on on gender inclusion and women's inclusion over the last few years. What I think you'll realise when you look at Chatham House's history more generally is that women's inclusion is very much led by staff. And that is how it evolved over the last five years that I've been here as well. So the work that we did as part of the gender working group was not something that was set up uh, from the top down. It was definitely grown bottom up from the realisation of staff that we needed to do more on women's inclusion in how we convene and how we conduct our research and who gets to write for Chatham House. And that's really interesting because earlier Katerina mentioned that Chatham House was sort of particularly hospitable to women in its early years, so between sort of the 20s to the 70s. But quite often the the jobs women had were more clerical and then they could perhaps work their way up to research positions. Yes, completely. And I think actually the gender working group as it existed from 2017 to 2020 very much mirrors that. So there was a push amongst staff, particularly in certain departments. I think our international security department is a great example of that, of really both seeing the um, discipline or the fields that we worked in and needing to change that as well as really needing to push for change within the organisation. And so what happened is that over two or three years, that was formalised into a gender working group, which had a gender action plan, which set very specific targets that we're still working towards. The public face of this will be the gender toolkit that um, is publicly available on the Chatham House website. And I think it's another really good example of how the work we conducted was done because it was very collaborative. So we worked with different think tanks across London and really learned from what they had developed, because I think a big part of this is not reinventing the wheel, but also asked them what they needed. And so the toolkit very clearly looks at how do you practically convene an event that is inclusive of women's voices? How do you practically conduct research that listens to women's voices and includes them from in every stage of the research being conducted? 
So it was both very collaborative and very practical, which is, I think, exactly the space that we should be in. At the same time, you were also heading up some IA efforts on inclusion. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Yes, of course. A bit of a throwback, but it's probably one of the things I've done at Chatham House that has been most exciting. So I think it originated in a conversation at the International Studies Association and someone on a panel, I don't know if you can remember who it was, Ruth Blakely. It was Ruth Blakely, yes. Ruth Blakely said, I would like to edit a journal where we just say, right, we're going to have 50-50, where 50% of the authors identify as women. And the IA team just went, well, we should do that then. (laughs) And so we had the 50-50 in 2020 initiative, which was particularly groundbreaking, I think, because 2020 was the year that Chatham House was 100 years old. So there was a lot of attention on us as an organization, but it was also the year of COVID in which it was particularly difficult because of the extra care and labor that was expected of women uh, to be able to achieve this. So I think it was kind of a perfect year to do it, apart from obviously the fact that there are a lot of other things going on. And so across all of international affairs is outputs, whether it's journal articles, book reviews, blog posts, anything that we did, um, we aim to have 50% of anyone contributing identifying as a woman and we achieved that which is incredible so if you go to the IA website you can read the full report on all of the details but it was a real feat I think for the journal and what we learned to go back to the collaboration point is that the way that you do this is by tapping into different communities and becoming part of communities that are already really really pushing for this and reaching out into spaces where the journal might not traditionally have been, where there are great academic conversations going on. And so what happens is that not only did it achieve that 50% of the journal's authors identified as women, but it also meant that it hugely increased the diversity of what the journal was talking about and is one of the reasons, in my opinion, that the journal's doing so well. Yeah, I think it's really exciting working at the journal today because we've obviously learn so much from that 50-50 initiative and we're keeping up with it, but also moving beyond that and thinking about how we can include genders beyond the binary, how we can think about Global South inclusion, LGBTQ plus inclusion, all of these other things. And I think that's sort of a similar process that's happening at Chatham House. I wonder if you could tell us about that. Yes, I think even when we were going through the 50-50 in 2020 process, this was something that we were butting up against that whilst it was a great achievement and something to be very, very proud of. Once you start having the conversation on inclusion and representation, you realise that actually 50-50 doesn't go far enough. And the same conversation in Chatham House was happening in terms of the gender working group and work we were doing on women's inclusion. And what you realise is that if you just look at gender and just look at women's inclusion, you tend to promote the work of white, cisgendered, straight, middle-class women. And of course, that is not enough. That doesn't fulfill all of what we're trying to do at Chatham House and IA. 2020, in this sense, was also a big year because it was the year that COVID started and we were realising that the disproportionate burden was not just falling on women, but on particularly women of colour, people of colour more generally. And then, of course, there was the murder of George Floyd and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, which had a huge impact on Chatham House and on the IA team. And I think what it really drove home to us as the Black Lives Matter movement resurged is that 
you have to really look at this in a cohesive and intersectional way. And that's really what we're trying to do at Chatham House at the moment. So, of course, we haven't stopped our focus on gender, but it is now part of a package where we look at race, we look at socioeconomic backgrounds, we look at the LGBTIQ plus community, we look at people with disabilities and really make sure that this is intersectional. So we're not saying um, we need to support the work of just black men or just white women, but we need to look at these things in an intersectional way. So race and gender, for instance, have to be part of the same conversation. Yeah, and, and this is this is really just the beginning of the process, definitely for the journal, but I think also for Chatham House. So, But there are some exciting things happening. So, for example, the other journal published by Chatham House, the Journal of Cyber Policy, just put out an EDI statement, also aiming to diversify their author base, engage more with underrepresented scholars. I think it's really important to do this kind of work very publicly. Um, we've seen other organisations like the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine or the Wellcome Foundation being very public about what journeys they need to go on as organisations. And I think if you do that the way IA did it with 50-50 and the way that the Journal of Cyber Policy, you realise that if you do it publicly, you can draw on other people's resources, you can learn from other people, and it becomes part of a collaborative effort across the field, which is how I think you achieve the best results. Yeah, and I'm going to just take this time to put a plea out from the journal because this is something we have we've really started this year. And if you look at our editorial in the January 2022 issue, we kind of set forward what we're what we want to do in our second century. And a big part of that is learning from the community how we can do better on diversity and inclusion. So if you have ideas, please get in contact with us. And I think I can say this, like maybe if you are in the team, you can't say it as, as clearly as I can, but YA is a space where we're always like interested in new ideas. And if people come to us and say, we'd like to do this, more often than not, the answer is yes. So I would definitely echo that and encourage people to get in touch. Great. Thank you, Leah. Great to have you on the podcast, Leah. Thank you so much for having me. It's always good to be back. So we're here with Joe Hills, the digital content editor for International Affairs, who has been instrumental in putting together these archive collections. Welcome to the pod, Joe. Hi, yeah, great to be here. Joe, can you tell us about what you've been doing with these collections? Yeah, so a lot of what I've been doing has been like for each topic going through virtually, I mean, pretty much every article that I has ever published, which is like, for some of them, even just looking at the articles on the specific topic, it'll be like four to 500 articles and like trying to help in like long listing them for the editor so that they can like have a manageable amount to work on a short list. It's been really interesting, like the amount of like surprising, weird and wonderful things out there is like fascinating. So can you give us some examples of the weird and wonderful things? I think they wouldn't necessarily have made it onto the shortlist. Yeah, so one of my favourite things are there are a lot of like very passive-aggressive book reviews in the early years of the <laughs> journal. Just incredibly dismissive one or two line responses to an entire book, um, which I think is always makes me laugh whenever I see them. Beyond that, I think the way just how patriarchal the space was in the early years is really interesting. Like a lot of the first um, women authors to write for IA weren't even listed as authors. They were mentioned in a footnote. And if you follow that footnote to a correspondence, then you can find out who the author is. And they're actually like a really eminent academic, but like it's hidden because of the fundamentally kind of patriarchal like naming recognitions. So Joe, can you give us some takeaways from your work this year? So one thing that was really interesting is how the 
political and power dynamics of Chatham House as a space affect what's being published in the journal to the point that articles are as much people making their case to the British foreign policy establishment, particularly in the early years, as they are academic work. You have some really like clear-cut examples of this, like um, when Julius Nerere made the case for independence at Chatham House that was republished in the journal. He's arguing directly against the colonial administrators he was campaigning for independence from. But even in like smaller ways, the kinds of arguments people feel able to make is kind of very conditioned by like Chatham House as at the centre of like the British foreign policy establishment and previously the British Empire, I guess, as well. So yeah, that's been it's been really interesting sort of see politics and research happen together in such like a an obvious way and the kind of very clear power dynamics that sort of happen within that. I guess the second thing that was like really interesting to me was seeing the really eclectic mix of influences on the discipline in its early years. We're so used to like IR being a thing that like exists as a subdivision of political science, but in the earlier issues, you have like philosophers arguing with economists and ethicists, people doing social work. For example, there's like lots of work on like Germany during the 20s and 30s. And one of like the most pressing critiques of like the rise of Nazism comes from someone who's mostly known for their contributions in social work. There's really interesting stuff on like the pol- early stuff in the politics of aid that comes from like people who are known primarily as nutritionists. Like it's incredibly esoteric compared to what we know now and like seeing all of these early forms of these disciplines often like quite influential academics arguing with each other it's like kind of like super smash bros but for <laughs> social science academia it's um, a great which, way of describing it um was, was really uh, fun to engage with i guess the last main takeaway is seeing responses to current events play out in real time is absolutely fascinating both what people do say and what they don't say the journal's response to the Falklands War and like a whole issue immediately suddenly becoming everything possible about the Falklands crisis was um, really interesting to see. As for the things that they don't talk about, so you would have thought it being one of the most major foreign policy crises for the UK in the 20th century, that the Suez crisis would come up, but it's discussed relatively little and a good while after the event. So yeah, the combination of what people talked about and didn't talk about is um, really interesting. It can be quite harrowing. Like, um, There's uh, a lot of work on support for refugees in the aftermath of World War II written by people that were involved in organising that effort. But often we look back on history and it's really nice to have been exposed to so much writing from within historical events and for people that were like directly reporting on things as they happened, I guess. Joe, you've been uh, living and breathing the archive for the last year, and I'm sure you know you are happy to be taking a break from this. <laughs> but is, is there anything that you will miss from putting together the archive collections? I think the surprise at just completely random and unexpected stuff, both good and bad, will definitely be something I miss. I feel like histories of the discipline focus so much on canonical, canonical figures and like big thinkers that everyone learns as part of their like undergraduate master syllabuses or whatever but to see like strands of thought that are happening now have like predecessors or like early accidents that aren't really talked about I would use this then as a plug for everyone to go and look at the archive there's so much interesting work there we were only able to include a handful in these collections and I think all the editors have said they could have written you know so much more so do go and explore the history of your interested in international relations. Joe, thank you so much. It's great to finally have you on the podcast. And thank you for all your work excavating. (laughs) Thanks. Great to be here.
I love that analogy. What was this? Super Mario Smash Brothers? And I've never heard IR <laughs> described like that. <laughs> this has been such a fantastic year. These episodes have been so much fun to put together. So thank you guys for listening. And thank you for joining us on this journey through 100 years of IR scholarship. From a personal perspective, I'm really pleased to be finishing on this theme because as a woman working in international relations, it's great to see how many amazing women contributed to the discipline. Yeah, it's been really interesting to see both the good and the bad in the archive and pay attention to that in 100th year, which I think is really important. But equally, as we're saying, you know, there have been all these amazing women and so many other people, these global contributors who have been part of the journal. And it's so exciting to be taking the journal forward into its second century and making sure we're really focusing on that. Izzy, thank you for being a great co-host on the podcast. Likewise, This has Christina. been fun. <laughs> it's been so much fun. And guys, stay tuned because at the start of next year, we will also be looking back at the centenary year and we've got a few more fun things coming. So keep an eye out. Thank you, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye.